Welcome to Talking Heads, a podcast recognising 25 years of nursing at the University of Melbourne, with a conversation with each head of nursing over the last quarter century. In today's podcast, we speak with Professor Sancha Aranda, who has over 214 scholarly publications addressing issues including cancer survivorship, cancer care and palliative care nursing, and research. In 2019, Professor Aranda was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for her services to community health and cancer control nursing. She's Professor of Health Services Research at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Professor of Health Services Research at the University of Melbourne. But most importantly, Professor Sandra Aranda joins me in conversation as the third Head of Nursing at the University of Melbourne. We started our conversation understanding where Professor Sancha Aranda began in the timeline of 25 years of nursing at Melbourne. So Judy Parker has always been really a mentor to me. So she employed me at La Trobe University and I went there to teach the cancer nursing course or to establish the cancer nursing course actually just after my first child was born. And so when Judy made the announcement that she was coming to set up a school at Melbourne, it made sense to follow her. So she started in the 1996 and I came early 97 to be her deputy head and took up an appointment at the Centre for Palliative Care as an associate professor in palliative care nursing. The centre had advertised a full-time appointment, but Judy and I convinced them that it would be a good idea for me to keep a link into my primary discipline, and that enabled her to draw on my experience in the tertiary sector as well as her own as we were establishing the school. So that's where it started. And that start of nursing at the University of Melbourne wasn't without controversy kind of controversial in many respects because it was seen as abandoning the roots of nursing and particularly with La Trobe having been the sort of original school really out of the College of Nursing. Physio had done it before us though so Joan McMeekin had taken off from La Trobe and come here to set up the physio school. For Judy and I it was really about the fact that nursing needed to be in a school or in a faculty that included medicine because of the criticality of that multidisciplinary approach to the future of the discipline and really the idea that nursing need to demonstrate that it can survive in a university that has medicine and in this case in a group of eight university because Sydney was just starting as well so we were sort of the two first schools in a group of eight university. There had been historical conversations about having nursing at Melbourne and that's really the genesis of the Marion Barrett lecture because the money that was left to the university by William Barrett was for the establishment of a nursing school and if not able to do that then for something in the education space. And so the university had made those decisions several decades before not to invest in nursing and I think that really spoke to the status of nursing within the community at that time. And then because of the relationship with the hospitals around the precinct, Melbourne University had begun with the postgraduate courses because those certificate courses in the hospitals, so particularly critical care and emergency at Royal Melbourne, were wanting to take themselves to a higher level of educational attainment and didn't want to really do that outside of 
Melbourne University and the precinct relationship. So that's why it started as the School of Postgraduate Nursing as opposed to the School of Nursing. So we were located actually in a little house right here. So where the Alan Gilbert building is where our first site was and it was really a house that had probably about maybe six offices and a meeting room and yeah we've moved quite a few times in between both in name and in location. The name changes were not correlated with the shifts in occupancy around the university. The ratio decedendi for the building changes included an asbestos scare, an upgrade and the entry to practice undergraduate. Whilst the iterations of names, from the original postgraduate school of nursing all the way to a school of health sciences with a department of nursing, were more complex. was really the entry into undergraduate nursing that led to the first change of name, and that would have, I guess, probably precipitated the first move through to Queensbury Street. And then we moved again when that building was being renovated because there was an asbestos um, issue in there and a lot of dust and other things and then we went to temporary accommodation on campus and then ultimately came here to the Alan Gilbert building which again was a bit controversial because it was seen as too a bit nicer building for nursing although we were nursing and social work by then so there's there's considering that that all occurred sort of between 96 um, and probably around the early 2000s. It's not a lot of time to have had three name changes and three or four buildings. So the first change was because we were no longer postgraduate. We had an undergraduate program in Bachelor of Nursing Science and then the second name change was when social work was moved into the faculty because it was being deleted from the Faculty of Arts. And there'd been talk that social work would actually disappear, which seemed a bad thing after a 60-year history. And then they moved into nursing and that was became nursing and social work. And that was a school. And then with the amalgamation with physiotherapy, it became a school of health sciences with a departmental structure. And then, of course, that's expanded now to having many more disciplines and quite a vibrant presence in the faculty. And there were advantages and challenges of being part of a large school of health sciences, the largest school in the largest faculty. The good thing about the School of Health Sciences being large is it gives it a bigger voice economically, I think, within the faculty. I think it is a struggle to make the disciplines visible, though, and that's been the case, I think, since inception and means that you've really got to have a head of school who has a strong understanding of each of the disciplines and values the worth that they bring or you are kind of one level removed from the decision-making. We've certainly brought the disciplines together in terms of location. I'll reserve judgment of, on whether we've become interdisciplinary There have been several lost opportunities over time around that. So when the Melbourne model was implemented, and I will not be able to remember the date offhand, when we made the decision to take nursing into the graduate space at the beginning because we wanted to be in on the early conversations that should, in my view, and were encouraged by the university, been about what could you build that were common subjects 
across the disciplines. And the tragedy of those early days was that there was completely zero subjects built across all of the disciplines in the beginning. So medicine did their own thing, physio did their thing, we did ours, social work did theirs. And so those opportunities were missed. Physio and medicine, I think, did a little bit more together in the anatomy space, but they had traditionally done that together. That was part of why physio came here in the beginning from La Trobe. Anatomy was taught by the Melbourne Medical School for the La Trobe Physio program. That had history, but really we did nothing else. And there was, I think, the lost opportunity for interdisciplinary education, even in the form of seminars. And I think it's been the biggest weakness that's continued to be replicated over the decades since. And possibly the one area where there has been more integration is in the higher degree area. So we've had a lot more interdisciplinary supervision of students. I've I've had social work PhD students. I've had a physio PhD student. So the the sense that we do do joint supervision and share expertise at that level is a great thing of the from coming from the school. But I think we really could do much more at the level of the entry to practice programs. And I think particularly around things like multidisciplinary approaches to treatment and care, management of diversity and um, you know special populations, issues around health equity, for example, all could usefully be taught interdisciplinary ways, um, as well as things like communication skills, because we often communicate within health environments in team-based settings and it would be useful I think to replicate that at the undergraduate or entry to practice level. We then spoke briefly about two recent truly interprofessional education initiatives in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences that bring students together to learn together a shared curriculum, Ways of Knowing and Professional Plus. So that's something like 14 or 15 years after the Melbourne model started. So it's taken a while to catch on. These missed opportunities for IPE across the School of Health Sciences was explained by the innate pressures of external credentialing of the professional courses. For nursing, this included the work to get the Master of Nursing Science accredited. The pressures, I guess, at the time also related to we had a very short time frame for getting everything done for registration and accreditation. And so those things took para, para, paramount importance for all of the disciplines. And I think we had something like six months to do the work. And then in order to take students in the following year, we had to get it done. I think it was something like May and the year before we were going to start that we had to have everything into the nurses board. Within this narrow time frame, what was Sanchez's drivers or focus for this new Master of Nursing Science curriculum? There were a couple of things that we were very centred on at the beginning and that was that it was to be a science base as well as the humanities. So we wanted to make sure that the students who came in really did understand the clinical dimensions of nursing in anticipation of a future of nurse practitioners where those things were going to be requirements and that these were 
students coming in who would be wanting those kinds of pathways. They were the idea of acceleration was really what you're looking for when you've got students with a first degree doing a degree. They're wanting to progress quite quickly because they're older and they've got obligations and those sort of things. So that was really important. The other thing that was really important to us was that it was to be a master's in level, which is why we fought so hard to have the research subjects embedded into the program. And there'd been a lot of pressure after the first sort of iteration to kind of reduce that to more of a research consumership approach. But we really wanted the students to have an applied experience. And that was because we wanted to be able to accelerate them into a PhD without necessarily going through an MPhil. Most of those students would, depending on what they'd done before, do have to have to do some PhD preliminary work, but they weren't going to have to go through a second master's because they had the research methods and applied experience. So we, we were really thinking about not just the curriculum to deliver competent nurses at the bedside, but actually what their future pathways would look like. Sanchez's vision for this Master of Nursing Science didn't appear to be intent on generating a graduate workforce. But like Judy Parker before her, there was a broader vision of the profession of nursing and its future leaders. It was very focused on the idea that we could accelerate leadership development for people who were smart and looking for an applied discipline. Serena Tompkins is an example of the sort of student that we anticipated that we would attract. Dr Serena Tompkins was an early graduate from the Master of Nursing Science who later became coordinator of the course from which she graduated. She actually already had a PhD in science coming in to do nursing as an applied discipline. You don't take people like that back to 16-page bed-making handouts, which is kind of my undergraduate training. You really have to build on the smarts that they already have. It means that you've also got to understand each of those students a little bit as an individual because it's not like taking school leavers where they come in at a bit of a level playing field. Graduate students don't. They are all at different levels and you need to be able to provide them with different opportunities to really make the most of that, to think about what they wanted to do with their career pathway much earlier than you would with a traditional undergraduate program. But one of the distinctive features of Sanchez's Master of Nursing Science was the innovative research program. In this program, Master of Nursing Science students worked in small groups with one researcher on a research project, moving through the entire research process from literature review to research question, ethics, methodology, data collection, analysis, dissemination and publication. As an observer of this outstanding research program, I was interested to hear Sanchez's experience of its success and how the subject came about. It was kind of interesting. It was one of those things where the people who were in teaching were quite divided from the people who were in research And so putting research subjects into the entry to practice curriculum was a bit threatening to the teaching only staff. And I can remember having arguments with the curriculum team about the fact that I wanted our clinical research team, um, so people like Fiona, teaching into the program 
in their areas of research excellence. I didn't want anyone teaching research from a textbook. And um, that was quite controversial. But in fact, research only becomes alive when it's real researchers who are teaching it. Trying to make sure that the teaching was done by the people who had the expertise, not because they were the teachers of the program, if that makes sense. And that's also good, very good for researchers to see that the preparation of the next generation is actually their responsibility. It's not the responsibility of people who are seen as just teaching. And, and I think particularly the idea that it moves away from research methods as being about a recipe because research is always um, a development process. So you might have a broad methodological framework that you're using, even in something as structured as a randomised controlled trial. But when you actually do the work, it's never that easy. There's all the real life comes to play in a hospital about even who you can recruit and how you can go about doing that. So um, I hope that those kinds of things have been retained in the program, that everybody feels that, the, for me anyway, the research outcomes are everyone's responsibility and that those students get the best of those experiences. So I asked for an example, an exemplar maybe, of one of the research projects and its outcomes. I was blown away. So the one I remember most is Fiona Newell's group at the Children's who did a quality control project where they actually observed bags of blood leaving from the point of exit from the blood bank right through to the delivery to the child um, against the hospital policy. And one of the bags of blood that they followed, it was a fascinating study, ended up in the arm of a child in the chemotherapy day unit. And the uh, nurses in the day unit gave the bag of blood. They obviously knew the child, but there were, the child had no name bracelet on. They, there was no questioning of the parent about their identity. And the blood was basically just hung. And this was considered a critical event in the context of a research project. And Fiona um, escalated this right through the hospital on, in the moment. So the students reported to her, she reported it up. And the director of nursing came downstairs to the chemotherapy day unit and went to the nurses and, are you looking after this child? Because the bag of blood was still dripping in. Um, yes, I am. Uh, so can you just tell me how this bag of blood's hanging there with a child without a name on it and, and a, a name bag? Oh, we don't do that down here. We know the children. And Bernadette, the director of nursing, Bernadette Toomey, said, uh, no, that's actually against the hospital policy. Do you know who you're talking to? Yes, you're the director of nursing, but it doesn't matter. And so it actually led to a whole exposure of the sorts of culture that sat around safety and quality. Um, you know, obviously the project did much more than that, but um, really helped it show that the, I think the most junior people in the environment, when given permission to escalate issues can do so, and then quality improvement activities that come out of that. The research projects were all you know, fabulous learning experiences. And then they got to present them to the whole school. 
after the the groups had finished and uh, yeah no they, I, it was some of the most worthwhile teaching I've ever done in my career really in my in that program Did the strong focus on science, leadership and research draw critics, naysayers or sceptics to which Sanchin needed to defend her course curriculum decision? We got less of that. Um, the, there was certainly some early, um, I guess, early questioning about the extent to which a two-year program was sufficient, the sort of sense that people had to go back to basics. At the time that we were developing the curriculum and um, the University of Sydney was developing theirs as well, their graduate entry program, and we had a lot of similarities, but they made the decision not to go with applied research because they felt it was too difficult to do that. And then not long after we'd started um, Monash did their graduate entry program, entry masters. So we'd all been doing graduate entry at the two-year degree level, um, but they they chose not to do applied research. And so it's part of what differentiated us. And so I think that sh- that was used in some of our marketing. So we didn't really. I don't think we got resistance. And there was certainly some not resistance, but scepticism about the quality that would be seen in the graduates, but that was overcome very quickly. Uh, I can remember one of the ward clerks, I think it was at the Royal Melbourne, um, saying, I can tell when it's a Melbourne student just by the way that they are around, the Melbourne graduate, so once they were in their graduate year, I can pick out the Melbourne graduates and really it was to do with things like the extent to which they questioned the status quo, the sort of confidence in, in their clinical practice, because they had as much clinical time as the three-year programs. So we didn't skimp on any of those things. They had to work hard to do that two-year program. Throughout these talking head conversations, I've been interested in the drivers for change for each head of nursing. For Sancha, I wondered about the drivers for the Master of Nursing Science and if there might have been a more personal driver for her. The the real driver was to not... Well, two drivers, really. One was to not be left behind in a university that was changing and there was a real sense that some of the disciplines, I think, that were hanging on to the idea of an entry degree for school leavers weren't really going to stay in the university but the other driver really was for me anyway the belief that nursing would be all the richer by bringing in the professional backgrounds of a range of disciplines. I had done all of my education so my degree, my master's, my PhD in nursing and I'd always found that I that that was a bit of a weakness not from a nursing perspective but from the fact that the skills that people are going to get in the combined Masters of Nursing, Masters of Public Health, for example, bring, in that case, analytic dimensions. Um, Judy Parker and Siobhan Nelson had sociology that brought also a different kind of analytic dimension. People like Linda Johnson had laboratory science that brought in 
all things that were of value to nursing and you know, I see nursing as a discipline of intersection and it has to be able to know a little bit about all of the other disciplines in healthcare's root knowledge base. There is a unique knowledge base to nursing but there is also a shared knowledge base with each of those other disciplines and the more that we can make the mix of nurses in any clinical environment made up of all of those knowledge sets, the stronger we will be as a discipline to make a difference in outcomes for patients, from my perspective. One theme became clear through this conversation. Santa is a nursing leader who advocates for other nurses to become strong leaders, empowered by their education and opportunities. Santa also wants to out a nurse and erase just a nurse. So certainly at that time and those comments that were made to me when I was doing my Masters reflected the idea that status was associated with moving away from the bedside, whereas for me status should be about how connected you remain. I remember when I started the job at Cancer Council, it was the first time I hadn't had a nursing appointment. So when I was at the Cancer Institute, in New South Wales, I still had one day a week between Peter Mac and the university. So I maintained a very strong clinical connection, not doing clinical practice, but engaging with clinicians, engaging with patients. And I had to fill in my nurse's registration and I, I couldn't tick the box that I was in a job that required me to be a nurse. It was the first time in 40, well, 38 years or something that I could no longer say that. And it was quite an identity crisis and I think a lot about the fact that even though I haven't worked directly in nursing for a decade now in that sort of sense that I still define myself as a nurse but that you can tell a lot about people by how they respond to that. So I've been campaigning for a while about what I call the outer nurse campaign as in coming out of the closet. When I took over nursing and social work here i I went to a dinner that social work ran where there was all the alumni and because they'd been here 60 years, there was a lot of them. But there were probably about five people in the room who were either sitting members of parliament or parliamentary secretaries and they're standing up proudly naming them social work. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't have a clue if there were any nurses out there because nurses tend to go into those things and then hide or they say things, oh, my background's as a health professional. They don't say my background's as a nurse. And so I want, I think we have a mission to expose those people. Um, Linda Christensen's a great example of someone who did keep her nursing front and centre of who she was, even as a vice-chancellor. And we've got Patricia Davidson's coming to be vice-chancellor of Wollongong, I'm still proudly a nurse. She's dean of nursing at John Hopkins, ex-UTS in Sydney, and cardiac nurse by background, cardiac palliative care more recently and she's so so there there are people that we need to put up as leaders and I I quite often in my cancer council role it's assumed often that I'm a medic and I never I try not to reveal that I'm a nurse even that's got REN on my business card first up and I work new people and I wait and then I reveal and their reaction is very telling so people are either oh, how did you get to do that as a nurse? Or they actually stop being interested in the conversation anymore. There's quite a, yeah, it's quite interesting. 
we aren't loud and proud. And I've had through Siobhan quite a lot to do with Suzanne Gordon and the you know her work from on silence to voice, what nurses know and need to communicate to the public. And that early editorial she did on just I'm just a nurse. And I think we've got to get rid of that language. And if COVID nineteen has provided a massive opportunity to show that without nurses, the world falls over. And so, yes, loud and proud, we need to own it more and learn to describe the skills that we have more effectively. I think that is part of what we try to build into the curriculum, experiences that actually had people deliberatively looking at their skill set and thinking about how it applied in the discipline to try and do that. Maybe maybe that made a difference, I don't know. Throughout this podcast series, each head of nursing has spontaneously shared their reason for moving on from the role. So did Sancha. I think Linda Denner has been doing a better job on, but one of the things that ultimately led me out of the university and to take up the role at Cancer Institute was a profound frustration that really had to do with that respect for the discipline in being different. And it came about through, we were paying $600,000 just as nursing in those days in university overheads to the faculty for the research component of our overheads. And we'd be getting back, I don't know, maybe 20 grand a year in small kind of things because it largely focused on support for people going for NHMRC fellowships or other kinds of things like that. And I remember speaking to the then Deputy Dean for Research and to the Dean, actually, about the fact that these programs were not designed for disciplines like us. They they were not meeting our research development needs and that we needed things that were more recognising of applied disciplines, not career research disciplines. And the same would have been true for social work and and others. And the, the response was, well, we'll run some training to teach your staff how to compete for these opportunities. And I kept saying, but you're missing the point. You, you completely missed the point. And so I, I think that I'd got tired of what I saw as the battle. And that's when I stepped down as head of school at that integration with physio, because I thought physiotherapy, from a research perspective, probably more in that fit and might have more of an opportunity to kind of change the direction. But I still think it's an incredible struggle for nursing and probably for social work as well to try and actually build the research programs that they need to support their disciplinary knowledge base because it isn't quite the same as the lab science. Probably still some work to do there. We finish each Talking Head podcast with the same questions. How did you end up doing nursing? And what advice would you give to someone considering nursing as a career or a newly graduated nurse? How did you end up doing nursing? 
Oh, so that's an interesting story. So I left school at 16. Uh, I'm from the south of New Zealand and I'm the fourth child and girls, three girls and a boy. And the girls were to leave, basically left school, got a job and then got married. And so I left school at 16, went to work in a bank. Within about nine months, I was in charge of a sub-branch. I was a teller in a sub-branch. I know, crazy now when you think about it. By that time, I was about 17 and a half. And um, I was bored out of my brain. So I was going to go back to school. And I went to see my headmaster, Lance Blakey. And he's because who tried to tell me I shouldn't leave school in the first place. And he said, Oh, well, you can come back to school next year. He said, But do you want to see if I can get you into nursing? He was chairman of the hospital board. This was the days before conflict of interest. <laughs> and um, so I got into the hospital based program in Invercargill, in the south of New Zealand, um, the only student without sixth form. And um, and graduated as ducks of the class. So, um, it, and I really th- think I found my place. And then I was, then I came to Australia a year later to meet some friends who were here on my way to the UK, went to the Royal Melbourne um, and was came to do burns, actually. I wanted to work in a burns unit. And I they said I hadn't done enough postgraduate Med- uh, medical um, experience so they sent me to Three North it was then which was general medical and oncology and so kind of the rest is history I found oncology and then went and did the cancer nursing course came back and was lucky enough at the time that the state government were offering scholarships to do the conversion degree so I did the two-year Bachelor of Applied Science at then Philip Institute um, on full scholarship. So very lucky. Both of us, my husband's a nurse as well, and he did it too. I think we got paid, I think we got paid $25,000 a year and free tuition. So it's pretty good, pretty lucky. I'm a bit of an advocate for free education. Yeah, it was, it, I mean, just made such a huge difference to my pathway because then I did um, my master's part-time and the masters of um, nursing then had education management or practice and I think we were a cohort of about 40 50 people three of us did the clinical major and I had people say to me you're mad you'll never go anywhere with a clinical major and it was and i had quite a bit of international experience by then and I expected, you know, I knew that nurse consultant roles were coming, nurse practitioner roles were coming. They just didn't come fast enough for me. The closest I got was halfway through my master's I moved to the children's and I was a clinical nurse consultant slash educator. So in a role that actually was very similar to one that Fiona Newell had for a while. Um, So I did basically clinical standards work um, on the ward and did clinical teaching as well. That was the closest I came and then like then I came to the university. When I got my associate professor role when I moved here at the Centre for Palliative Care, it was a, a clinical professorial role at, at level D, 
I wrote to all the other clinical professors and associate professors in Australia, there were probably about 20 of us at that time in various roles, and asked them about how they were integrating clinical practice into their roles. And uh, most of them wrote back. Of those, I probably got about maybe 15 replies. Of those, 13 said, are you mad? There's no room for that. It's hard enough to develop clinical research without keeping clinical practice. One responded with, when you work out how to do it, let me know because I'd really like to do it as well. And Alan Pearson was the only one that was managing it. So he was in South Australia and their academic team ran the pre-admission clinic. So he had a, they defined a piece of practice and then provided a service to the hospital by running that pre-admission clinic and was part of their research program. And I found that incredibly disappointing. And there's really been, nursing's been very slow at creating roles that enable people to be a bit more hybrid. So we did that for Donna Milne at Peter Max, and she had a role in the research team and a role in the melanoma unit, so a, a split role. But I understand she's now got full time to practice because it becomes too hard to do it. Whereas medicine does it all the time. They divide their life into sessions and you would not find very many clinical professors that don't have practice in medicine. And I think nursing needs to be much better at modelling itself on that continued engagement with practice. We are a practice discipline and we are only as strong as that connection can be kept. What advice would you give to someone considering nursing as a career or a newly graduated nurse? See nursing as a discipline and an opportunity to do almost anything. That nursing as a career can take you to the community, it can take you to government, it can take you, you know, to practice. And that holding true to your discipline means really that you're always trying to make a difference in the outcomes for people who are the recipients of your of whatever your effort is wherever you work. So do you ever regret leaving the bank? No. <laughs> no, in fact, not at all. I just think how boring that would have been. We thank Professor Sancha Aranda for her time, openness and insights. We also thank you for supporting this podcast series and your interest in 25 years of nursing at the University of Melbourne. In our next Talking Heads podcast, we speak with the fourth head of nursing Professor Elizabeth Patterson. Until next time.